Why don't we listen to experts? I'm Sean Illing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. From the forever wars to Hurricane Katrina to the 2008 financial crisis, it seems like we're always careening into totally avoidable catastrophes. And in almost every case, the problem is our collective inability to learn what we already know and do what we know we ought to do. Why is that? One answer is that we don't trust each other, let alone our public institutions. And we most certainly don't trust our experts. It's very hard against that backdrop to apply our knowledge and solve society's biggest problems. Legendary journalist and best-selling author Michael Lewis is taking all of this on in the new season of his podcast, Against the Rules. Lewis is as good a storyteller as we have, and he takes a really close look at what's happened to our trust in experts and expertise. All my books are the same in one crude way. I start out knowing very little about the subject. I go find actual experts, people who know stuff, and write stories about them. They are the experts. I'm just a guy who writes books about them. The problem, he says, isn't that we lack experts. In fact, we have lots of experts. Some of them have likely saved your life before. You just don't know it. You need to find the person who spent the last 20 years stuffed inside some basement without windows, quietly learning things. Not the officially important person. Not the public person. The person on TV. In any given situation, you think it will be obvious who the expert is. It won't. So the issue is this. We don't trust expertise, and we're really bad at recognizing it when we see it. And not surprisingly, our society just doesn't value expertise the way it should. In so many ways, we've actually built an economy and a culture that incentivizes stupidity and obscures intelligence. I invited Lewis onto the show to talk about how that happened, why it's a major problem, and if there's a solution to it. Michael Lewis, welcome to the show. It's nice of you to have me. I am always intrigued by the stories that you choose to tell, whether you know it's about baseball or Wall Street or whatever. You have a lovely gift for finding these <laughs> kind of obscure characters and then using them to tell these bigger and usually unexpected stories. And all that buttering up is really a preface for this question, which is, why tell this story about what you call America's expert problem? What motivated this one for you? Two answers to that. One is that it starts with the conceit of the whole podcast. It's the third season of Against the Rules. And the conceit in the beginning was trying to look at American life through the lens of a character, a role in American life. And the first season was about referees. Second season was about coaches. And I had a long list of things that the third season might have been about, but then the, the pandemic intervened. And I wrote a book called The Premonition, and what jumped out of the book from between the lines was we have a big expert problem. I was finding people 
who nobody had ever really heard of, who would have been better suited to run the pandemic than the people who were running the pandemic. And I thought, well, how could that be? Like, that makes no sense. And it was a problem that was not just at the federal level, but also at the state level. The main character, the premonition, was a local public health officer in California named Charity Dean, who, when the pandemic hits, is number two in the California State Health Department. And it emerges, it's quite clear that she knows more about communicable disease and knows more about managing it, has more battlefield experiencing doing it. Her whole life was a lead up to the moment where she would run a pandemic and the state couldn't figure out she existed. And so I started thinking about it and I thought, well, this isn't just actually the pandemic, that we do have this unbelievable ability as a society, our society, to generate knowledge and generate expertise. We're like the world's leaders. We're leading research universities. The federal government is an engine for creating expertise. We are an innovative, interesting, dynamic people. And yet we don't access the knowledge all that well. So I thought, let's do that. Let's just take the character and see where it goes. And so the thing about the podcast is it's different from book is I can start it without knowing how it's going to end. I can't write a book without knowing how it's going to end. I kind of need to know the last sentence before I write the first sentence. But with this, it's seven stories around the theme. And they don't all have to be about exactly the same thing. It's just they're starting with the theme of experts and what's going on with experts and everything that might get in the way of the society figuring out who the expert is or the expert having that voice. So that's what led me into it. And it was a total gas to do. I mean, we were spoiled for choice once we got into it, what our stories would be. How did you end up finding the experts that you decided to profile You know, in the podcast? Did you look for some extraordinary outcome in the world and then sort of work backwards to the characters beneath it? Or is there some other process? More than one way. I'll give you two examples, concrete examples of different ways people found their way into the show. So episode six is just about men. It starts with mansplaining. It starts with men thinking they know things that they don't know in the presence of people who do know the things they think they know and the men drowning out the people who know. We start with where mansplaining comes from and we start asking questions about what's at the bottom of this. And pretty soon you find yourself in a world of social stereotypes where men have an easier time passing themselves off as experts than women because people don't expect the women to be experts. And then we find a character, an Indian American woman who's a family practitioner, doctor, former West Point cadet, was a doctor in the military, who is on an airplane, just on a commercial flight on a vacation. When there's a medical emergency, a guy collapses on the floor next to her. And the flight attendants come running and they start screaming, is there a doctor on the plane? Is there a doctor on the plane? And she stands up and she says, I'm a doctor. In fact, she's exactly the kind of doctor you want in this moment. And they look right by her. And a guy three rows behind says, he basically says, I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. He says, I'm a nurse. <laughs> and they look right by her and she keeps saying, you don't understand, I'm a doctor. And they just, they don't see it. Yeah. I mentioned her because that's someone who walks into our podcast. And it turns out that the way we found her is there is a kind of Facebook support group of women doctors who've been ignored in medical emergencies on airplanes. Holy shit. Is there really? Well, I mean, of course there is, but wow. It's a thing, right? So we found her just to illustrate the point, but we didn't start with the character. We started with the idea that led us to, huh, this is an interesting illustration of the problem. Let's find one of them and talk to them. 
but the reverse of that is there are a couple shows that deal with the revolution in expertise that has occurred that I documented in Moneyball, where you've got a new kind of person who is the expert. It's no longer the person who played baseball. It's the geek with the laptop who can analyze baseball statistics. And one of these shows focuses on a character I've always wanted to get at as a character, Bill James, the baseball writer who's really the beginning of that revolution. And I wrote about him in Moneyball, but I never really got to the why of it. Like, why did this all start and what he makes of it now? And I knew he was a great character. So with him, it was just like, oh, I know I want to do a show about Bill James and we're going to go find Bill James. So there are different ways people wandered in. Mainly what was was me and the producer sitting around talking about what was most interesting around this theme. Like, where do we want to go? And let's go find the people who can help us get there. Well, let's step back a little bit and then work our way through some of these bigger ideas to the point you just made a few minutes ago. We live in this society that, as you say, has created an immense amount of knowledge and expertise, is very good at creating knowledge and expertise. And yet, for whatever reason, we seem to either squander it or there's some constitutional inability to apply it. It seems like we are so much dumber than we have any right to be. (laughs) Why is that, Michael? (laughs) Why? It's a great question. It's a really great question. I think part of it is we have the luxury of being that way. Mm. There are various safety nets to our idiocy. (laughs) But why is that? I think there are a lot of answers to it. I think the podcast, like my books, has a very general approach to such a question. It's sort of suggesting answers without hitting you over the head with an answer. It's letting you figure out what the answer might be. I think anyone who listened to all seven episodes, one of the things they might say... I don't think I ever come out and directly say it, but one of the things they might say is, well, in a lot of spheres of life, a lot of areas of life, there has arisen new expertise. It's very complicated and it's not easy to understand the expertise, especially for people who were not particularly numerate or statistical or scientific. I'll give you an example. Weathermen, meteorologists, 50 years ago, you're in Gulfport, Mississippi. There is a very famous old weatherman in Alabama named James Spann. He says he's the second most famous man in Alabama behind Nick Saban, the football coach. He's a wonderful weatherman, devoted his life to stopping people from getting killed by the weather in Alabama, which happens often. And he said 50 years ago, when he started, he knew basically nothing. When he got up to predict the weather, You know, he was kind of like he'd stick his head out the window. It's it's pretty sunny today. He would give you a very crude understanding of what might happen the next couple of days. Ten days out, he was useless. Like, he was no better than guessing. He certainly had no idea, like, when and where tornadoes were going to touch down. Not very good at predicting movements of hurricanes. Yet, he said he stood up on air, and his job was to seem as confident as possible about what he was saying. He said it was the Ron Burgundy era anchorman. And he got very little grief for his forecasts. He was an authority figure. Now, flash forward 50 years, he knows a great deal. His 10-day forecast is pretty good. His three-day forecast is three times more accurate than it was 50 years ago. He can tell you with some precision where you were at real risk of being killed by a tornado and when and how to save yourself from it. His life is a constant stream of grievances from the people who feel he's misinformed them. And you know, it's, he says there's a 20% chance of rain 
and it rains, everybody thinks it's an idiot. They don't understand the nature of the forecast, that it is probabilistic. If there's a 20% chance of rain, two out of 10 times it's going to rain. It's not that he's wrong when it rained. It's that that's the nature of the forecast. It's information that's very useful. It's better than it used to be. And he's treated as if he's stupider than he ever was. You find this, I think, in a whole bunch of areas where the expertise is complicated and the understanding is probabilistic. So I don't think people think of this this way, but medicine. Talk to a doctor before COVID. Now it's kind of obvious. It's in everybody's face. But before COVID, they would tell you that 30 years ago, my profession knew a lot less about a lot of things than they do now. I am much more useful to a patient now than I was 30 years ago. But every day, I'm getting more and more people walking into my office thinking, I don't know what I'm talking about. And they just read this thing on WebMD and they know what they're talking about. So it's something about our information environment and our ability to understand people who are making probabilistic judgments about things that makes it difficult for people to see who knows and who doesn't and evaluate them. So that's part of it. But I don't think that's a full answer. Yeah, I mean, certainly not understanding expertise is one thing, but then it also feels like there's a problem where we just simply actually don't value it. You know, I've said a bunch over the years that I think we're a society that knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And maybe that's probably why we don't recognize expertise when we see it. But I don't know. Now that I just said that aloud again, I don't know if that even makes sense. No, I think there, I think you, if that just sounds deep, it doesn't make any sense. No, can I, t- can I tell you a story that I got into in this thing that dramatizes what you just said? Sure. The bigger story, and this drops out of a book I did called The Fifth Risk about the federal government, which just kind of, I wandered into the federal government and looked at it as a risk management enterprise and kept meeting these unbelievably impressive, passionate, self-sacrifice and mission-driven experts who were just trying to save us from ourselves. After I finished that book, we had our government shutdown of 2000, what was it, 2018? You remember that one? And 60% of the federal workforce was furloughed as inessential workers and sent home without pay. And I thought of those people I'd met, and I, I asked for a list of people who'd been sent home from an organization in Washington that was monitoring the situation called the Partnership for Public Service. And they had a list. It was a not a random sample of federal employees. It was federal employees who'd been nominated for one of their awards they gave out every year. Thousands of people. And it was an alphabetized list of thousands of people who someone thought they'd done something good, who had all been sent home without pay and told whatever they did didn't matter effectively. So I took this list and I'll just, I said, I wanted to pick one at random and see What are we not valuing here? What are we not seeing? It was a guy whose name was on the top of the list, Arthur A. Allen. He won the alphabet contest. So I call him up. I asked him if I could come visit him and just see what he's doing. He had nothing else to do. He was sitting at home with nothing to do. So this guy, what has he done his whole career? He's the lone oceanographer in the Coast Guard Search and Rescue Division, who he'd started in like the late 70s, had worked out all by himself that there was a particular problem that was costing a lot of American lives. And the particular problem was that when someone was lost at sea, the Coast Guard didn't know how they drifted in the ocean. And Americans have this unbelievable talent for getting lost at sea, which is a whole other thing. On average, every day, the Coast Guard is saving 10 people who are lost at sea and losing three. So you're talking about thousands of people who are getting in this situation every year. And the problem is that if you fall off a boat 
just like you are right now, you're going to drift differently than if you are in a life raft or if you're sitting on top of an overturned sailboat or if you have a life vest, you will move differently. So if the Coast Guard, as it often does, knows where you started and when you started, like when your craft capsized and what you're on or what you're wearing, they should be able to predict where you are in the ocean four hours later, knowing the currents and the wind and the drift. But they didn't know the drift. And Arthur Allen figures this out and spends years, often on his own free time, tossing objects into the Long Island Sound beside which he lives and measuring the specific drift of like 80 different categories of objects. It sounds boring. It would have been incredibly tedious to do. He reduces, though, the drift to mathematical equations, embeds them in the search and rescue software program, and instantly they're starting to find people they never would have found before. Now, thousands of Americans are alive because of him. Around the world, other countries have celebrated him. We haven't because of the lives he saved in their countries with this work. No one knows who he is. No one pays any attention to him. They furlough him as if he's useless. I thought for the podcast, what I did is I brought him together with a guy who'd fallen off the side of a fishing boat and was found eight hours later. Who would be dead? That's a terrifying story. And the guy, it never even occurs to the guy who is plucked miraculously out of the Pacific Ocean, how they are in the dark, how they ever found him. The story he tells himself is Jesus saved him. And he dreams up that story when he's in the ocean. He goes, falls in the ocean. He's not a religious man. He becomes a religious man. He gets saved. And that's his story. He never hears the name Arthur A. Allen. The punchline to all this, to your point about like the way we treat these experts who save our paint over and over. When I went to go see Arthur Allen to talk to him about what he had done with his life, I spent three days with him interviewing his family, going to see his old office, going to the Long Island Sound to see where he dropped his objects, asking him every which way, you know, the story of his career. After the three days, I'm going back to the airport home. And I, when I called him, I said, this is Michael Lewis, and I'm a writer, and I'm really interested in what you do. On the way to the airport, he calls me, and he says, with real wonder in his voice, hey, you're a published author. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm a published author. He says, you're like a real deal. You're a real writer. And I said, yeah. He said, are you going to be writing about me? And I said, yeah. That's why I spent three days learning about how objects drift. Yes, I'm going to be writing about you. He goes, he goes, wow, I didn't expect to get any attention for this. And I said, well, what did you think I was doing for those three days? He said, I just thought you were really interested in how objects drift. And I think this is the mental world of the government expert, that they're so used to nobody caring what they do, even when what they do is like mission critical, that they can't imagine us even taking an interest in them. We so don't value them that they don't value themselves. This is a point you make in the show, right? That the most valuable experts we have basically have a massive PR problem, right? I mean, actual experts just aren't very good at selling themselves, which is perhaps why we need the Michael Lewis's <laughs> of the world to spin their successes into a good old-fashioned yarn. Yes. Because experts will never be able to do that, right? I mean, they'll never be able to do that. Someone has to tell their story. They do suck at telling their story. This is true. As a rule. Not always, but as a rule. And part of the reason is the kind of people who sit there thinking about how to market themselves aren't the kind of people who are developing these exquisite expertises. The kind of person who develops the expertise 
it's essentially kind of a local thing. It's a narrow, specialized thing. And they aren't thinking about how to broadcast it and how to make themselves famous and all that. Compounding this, is there are all these rules, these federal rules about the government promoting itself, which is, I think, a mistake. I think that actually we'd all be better off if everybody understood exactly what the government did. But I came to think of it as a narrative problem that experts don't tend to show up in the famous stories we hear as heroes, and that we have a bias towards miracle workers, magical people. Experts are tedious and boring and nerdy. Well, yeah, I also feel like the image that a lot of people have of the expert is, I don't know, the kind of hyper-educated technocrat in a suit type. And that almost seems a little like a misleading bias. I mean, you make a kind of offhand comment in one of the early shows where you say that you think a lot of the arbitrariness of social status has a way of obscuring someone's real value. And I kept thinking, I'm a veteran. And I kept thinking about this dynamic in the military with NCOs and officers. The NCOs are the enlisted men and women who basically spend a few years learning a job and then they lead people, younger soldiers, and tell them how to do that job. Anyone who's been in the military knows NCOs run the military. They make it work. It would fall apart without them. But they don't have the fancy badges. They don't speak the language of expertise, which has nothing to do with intelligence and everything to do with education. But they have all the practical knowledge, Yeah, but they're not you know what I mean? They're not treated like experts. They're more like functionaries. That seems like a kind of larger societal problem in microcosm. I'm with you on that one. I, I really think that we exaggerate status differences and create inequality at our peril. Yeah. Because what you do, you end up shoving into ever lower status role, the person who actually knows the things. And you get in big complicated organizations government agencies or corporations or the army or wherever it is, when some crisis pops up, some problem pops up as a very specific solution, it's really unlikely the specific solution is going to be in the heads of the people who are at the top of the organization. It's going to be something nitty gritty. And the person is going to be six levels down in the organization. And if you've created these barriers between the levels so that someone who's six levels down will never be heard by someone at the top, you're essentially saying we're never going to surface the expertise that we need to deal with the problem. Something like this happened in the pandemic, I think. I think that we had this apparatus for dealing with communicable disease. It was called local public health. That's who did it, local public health officers. Their status was so low. They were so socially powerless. They still haven't stepped kind of front and center stage and taken over the thing. But if I were, you know, like a television producer booking guests who can explain to America what's going on with COVID, that's who I'd book. But you don't see them because they're kind of invisible because they're low status. You see some fancy pants person who worked in the White House who doesn't actually know anything. And this is a broader problem. And it's a problem that has been exacerbated by the structure of our society, by these widening chasms between level one and level two and level two and level three and level three and level four and so on. We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, what's the difference between an expert and an amateur? And how do we figure out who to listen to? Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. 
Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com vox. You can go to shopify.com vox now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Do you think we need some kind of hierarchy of experts? I mean, all experts aren't created equal, right? A geologist or a surgeon is a different kind of expert than someone like Nate Silver, for example. <laughs> This is the second shot I've fired at Nate in many weeks. But uh, anyway, moving on. But for all kinds of reasons, many of which you lay out, we all know who Nate Silver is. But we do not know the name of the surgeon who probably developed some technique that saved a life 10 minutes ago, right? That's just where we are. It's worth asking. I mean, I'm asking it. This isn't rhetorical. Why? Why we're there? Why we pay attention to what we pay attention to? I regarded it as a literary opportunity. I mean, I'm making hay out of this, wandering into places that are actually important that people haven't shined a light in is basically what I do. And so in some level, I'm kind of glad that people aren't figuring out what's important and what's not important. But it is interesting. Like, why do we not appreciate people who whose narrow understanding of some really important subject is going to save all our lives? The happy side of this. I was thinking about this the other day because I don't know how you, if you follow the Ukraine war as obsessively as I'm following the Ukraine war, but I spent about an hour a day trying to find out what the hell's happening. And Twitter is now full of people who have really narrow kind of expertise mm-hmm. who are lighting up my understanding of what actually is going on. This guy named Trent Talenko is one of my favorites and he's got a, now a big following. He really understands army logistics. That's what his career was about. I don't know if he's an NCO, but he's, he was like a grunt. He was someone in the army who was like fixing the vehicles. And his ability to look at a stalled convoy of Russian vehicles and examine the tires, notice that they're old. These are not the tires that should be on the vehicles. And the tires are the problem. And if the tires are the problem, it's probably a corruption problem in the Russian army because some person who was supposed to replace them just took the money to replace them instead of replacing them, assuming they'd never actually be used and no one would notice. We're never going to have a war. We'll just keep the money. That's an encouraging story that he get to hear his voice now. But it's interesting how pre-Twitter, no one would have ever found Trent Talenko. There are examples that pop to mind of people surfacing and getting paid attention to who deserve to be paid attention to, who might not in an earlier era. I don't know, are you following, are you like me, 
Are you noticing this, that there are all these people who oh, are- Oh, yeah. No, there's four or five Twitter accounts I've followed in the last couple of weeks. People like that. Someone like, there's a guy named Rob Lee, and there's this yep. other military strategist historian guy, and they just go through it with the most meticulous detail. Sometimes I can make it all the way through. Sometimes I can't. But it's extraordinary how much knowledge people have out there and how willing they are <laughs> to spend the time it takes to share it. But also dramatizes that you never know who's going to understand something that's really, really important. And if left to the status of the organization, you wouldn't surface that person. It took Trent Talenko or Rob Lee, whoever it is, getting themselves on Twitter and advertising what they know. Well, there's also a problem of trust. And as you know, there is a whole political industry basically devoted to eroding trust in expertise and acting as a kind of mediating layer between the institutions charged with informing us about the world and the public. I don't know how central that is to the story you found yourself telling here or, or how much you think about it, but I'm curious what you do. It's funny, it's the episode, the last episode, the only one I haven't written, we are gonna get into that very subject. The reductio ad absurdum of the problem was Donald Trump. Right. He's the ultimate expression of something that particularly took root in the Republican Party of trying to undermine trust in institutions and expertise. And you ask kind of why, I ask myself why. And the answer is, I think, that he and people like him really only flourish in an environment where there isn't trust. That he needs to create a trustless environment so his untrustworthiness does not stand out. So that everybody seems untrustworthy. And it levels a kind of playing field that shouldn't be leveled and that's the strategy. It's, yeah, I might be a crook, but everybody's a crook. Yeah, I might lie, but everybody lies. And it has a really bad effect on the authority of, of all authority figures, right? It isn't just Donald Trump. We've been living through a long period of decline in trust in authority figures. Not um, just here, across the, the globe. Yeah, across the globe. There's a nurse who appears in one of our episodes who, it's heartbreaking. She's been a nurse for a long time, the thing she took just enormous pride in is every year Gallup published a survey of the most trusted professions in America, and nursing was always at the top, except for one year right after 9-11, firemen were at the top. And she knew, she follows it. You know, it's like she really loved that people trusted her. She was an emergency room nurse, and COVID just broke her back because all of a sudden people are rolling in the emergency room, dying of COVID, and when she tells them they have COVID, they punch her because they think COVID is a hoax. Yeah. But what she says, which is kind of interesting, is apropos of what we said earlier, is that I kind of saw something like this coming, maybe not quite as bad as it's been, because it's been happening for a while, that people come in and they think, they don't trust me, they trust what they just read on the internet. Even though nursing is still at the top of the list, the percentage of people who say they trust nurses is, has been declining. So why is this and what do you do about it? I do think of it as a luxury. It's sort of like, the luxury of a society that hasn't really faced an existential threat for a long time, that's lived with basically with peace and prosper incredible prosperity for a long stretch, can afford to indulge in this trustless sort of behavior. That the minute something really serious pops up, people will look for a trusted figure to follow. So I think part of it is it's the nature of the times we live in. Part of it is the nature of the, the information environment we live in has changed so much. It's easier to cause people to lose trust than to gain trust. It's like, it will take me a lifetime to persuade a reader to trust me. And it will take one mistake 
to cause them to say, oh, I can't trust that guy. So there's an asymmetry there that's at work. Nate Silver. So Nate Silver, who you disparaged almost earlier, I think of Nate Silver as a great contribution to American politics, that he, what he replaced was five white guys on television who happened to have gone to a diner in Iowa predicting who's going to be president based on their conversation with someone in the diner, that there was no rigor to political forecasting. And he really upped the game in the use of data to make projections. He's not saying he knows. He's saying, I'm trying to assign probabilities here. So Nate Silver, he nails the first Obama election in the most extraordinary way, in a way that was partly lucky. He himself would say, you know, we could have been wrong. These are judgments. He becomes overnight a sensation. And then what happens? We get to Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. Going into the election, I think he says, like Hillary Clinton has a 72% chance of winning. Whatever it is, that kind of number. Compared to what other people were saying, he was giving Donald Trump a pretty good chance. But the way people read it was, he's saying Hillary's going to win. And on the back end of that, I mean, his reputation collapsed really unfairly. People read him as saying that Donald Trump was going to lose. Donald Trump won, therefore he's wrong. What he was really saying was you run this election in some theoretical way 100 times and Donald Trump will win 22 of them, which is different. It's like saying it's 20% chance of rain and, and it rained. So I guess what I'm saying is that it's a combination of the nature of the expertise and people's inability to evaluate it and the speed with which they seize upon apparent error to reduce your authority over them. Yeah, those are good points. And I, I think another problem here is that I feel like terms like elites and experts are now used interchangeably mm. and they're not the same thing. No. Right? The elites are not necessarily the experts, right? And the failures of the elites are too numerous to count, right? From Enron to the forever wars to the financial crisis to whatever, right? The elites have blundered into one catastrophe after another, but they didn't do it because we didn't know better. They did it because they were corrupted by perverse incentives or whatever. Yeah. I actually wonder, I think you and I would both agree, a certain amount of skepticism of expertise, certainly of authority is good. At what point do you think that skepticism becomes pathological? You got to answer that question. I don't, it's an unanswerable question. I don't, all right, I'll give my, I'll give it a whirl. It becomes pathological at the point where your unwillingness to take in what the putative authority or expert is saying kills you. <laughs> so that's, that's certainly one definition. So yeah, it is pathological when you turn up in the emergency room as a 45 year old healthy police officer, a store guy in our story does with COVID and he's circling the drain and he refuses to be intubated because in his view, hospitals are trying to kill people in the ICU with the intubation. That's pathological. It's pathological when you are running a big Wall Street firm and you're unable to distinguish between the trader who's making a lot of money in your firm, making really dumb, really dumb bets on the subprime mortgage market. And the person who has actually got a bead on how the subprime mortgage is going to unravel and can explain it to you, but you don't want to hear it. And so your firm blows up. It's sort of like when it's self-defeating to ignore the expertise. 
you can get away with ignoring a lot of expertise, right, in your life as you move through the world. And I agree that you never want to lose your ability, on the one hand, to kind of question the things you're being told. But it's also not true that everybody has a right to an opinion about everything. Like, I don't have a right to an opinion about climate change. There are people who study this stuff. Their whole lives are devoted to trying to understand it. They are state-of-the-art. It is a scientific consensus. My opinion shouldn't exist. But people think they have a right to an opinion about it. No, look, look, if I stormed into a conference of climate academics tomorrow and got on stage and told them that their models just weren't resonating with me, like no, one, <laughs> no one should give a shit. Like no one should listen, right? It, my opinion doesn't matter. <laughs> right. No one should listen. But then there's also this question, right, of when, you know, experts and the institutions that create them become too insular or too defensive or, you know, are really just oblivious to their own blind spots and they need to be challenged yeah. and forced to rethink their assumptions and methods. Again, I'm thinking about Wall Street or even baseball, right? That's kind of the same story there. It is the same story. So baseball is a really good example that if you walked into baseball when I did in 2002 and you really poked around, you'd have found that a lot of the people who were claiming to be experts in what a good baseball player was and who was going to be good the next year and who you should trade for they actually weren't the experts. They were in positions of authority, but there was this new form of expertise that involved sophisticated analysis of big piles of data yeah. and thinking about it, the data in a more interesting way that was superior to the old expertise. So the old experts were no longer the experts. And that happens over and over, right? So in that case, you wanted to be open to the idea that the people who were holding themselves out as experts actually weren't. You're, I think what you said was right, and I think that's an illustration of it. I don't know. Maybe, do you think on some level that the world has just become so big and so complex that it's just... Too much for people to... Yes, too much for people to make sense of. Yes, I do think that. And then when that collides with some of these failures of expertise, the temptation to just retreat into conspiracy theory or tribalism or whatever becomes almost irresistible or seductive. To default into a narrative that's fueled by anecdote that happens to come from the small circle of people in your world. I've seen this. I've been amazed with people I admire and like and I think are intelligent who will sit down with me and tell me they're not getting vaccinated because the vaccine is making people sick. And they're not wrong in one way. They know somebody who got sick. But that's the thing that they pay attention to as opposed to the 1 billion studies that show that you were just so much better off being vaccinated than not being vaccinated. It's not true. It's like you walked into the casino for the first time in your life, looked at all the games, you saw someone pull a slot machine and they hit the jackpot. And you decide, oh, well, the slot machines are the smart game to play here. It's people organizing a complicated world with stories that are basically not true stories. They're not representative stories. They just happen to be the stories they hear. And if you made me God and said, Michael, okay, how do you fix this problem? You're not gonna make the world any less complicated. It's gonna get more and more complicated. And I get to do anything? I'd say, well, you probably can't fix the problem exactly, but where do you start? One of the places I'd start is it would be, by law, everybody would have to take a basic course in statistics. <laughs> Everybody would have to learn about a little bit about data and probabilities and statistics, just so they understand 
the notion of a small sample size, especially a sample size of one. But I think you're right about the world has just gotten much more complicated in response to the complexity. We've generated a whole bunch of experts who can understand little pieces of the world for us. But if we then fail to acknowledge their expertise, we're sort of stuck in this really horrible place where we've got a more complicated world and no ability to understand it. Well, it's also true that it's never been easier to think you know more than you do. Because you have information at your fingertips. Right. I don't know. Did you read uh, Martin Gurry's book, The Revolt of the Public in the 2014 no. book? You would like it. It's I'll make a note. The Revolt of the Public. And yeah, the basic thesis there was that you know the rise of distrust that we're seeing was unleashed by this digital earthquake, right? There's now so much information. We know so much more. The world is more transparent. And at the same time, paradoxically enough, confusing. And the upshot is that because of that, the failures of elites are just impossible to cover up now. And the people in power can't control the stories societies are telling themselves about themselves. And so the result of that is just mass distrust and just a kind of collective no to everything. And that's kind of where we are. Yeah. We got at this in a funny way in the first season of the podcast when we did referees. There was this, this narrow phenomenon, this really curious story that I thought spoke volumes about what was happening in the culture. And it was set in the world of professional basketball. And you go to the NBA and you look at what's happened with referees in the NBA over the last 40 years, say. They've gone from being a handful of white guys chosen basically from one high school in Philadelphia kind of thing. There's a really small pool of people who were sort of let into the job who were not all that really that well-trained or they weren't a professionalized workforce. They had no real checks on their behavior or their decision-making. There wasn't an overhead screen that replayed their errors to them. They didn't have technology available to fix their errors in real time. So over time, the NBA sets out to reform refereeing and make it much, much better. And they've worked their asses off to do it. These people are trained in the most incredible ways and they are given instant feedback about their mistakes and they're able to correct their mistakes in real time because they have the technology to do it. And there is no question that even though they've gotten better and better and better, the fans think they've gotten worse and worse and worse and the fans treat them with more and more venom like more and more hatred, more and more hostility. Yeah. The old guys 40 years ago did not need a police escort to and from the arena. Now people know the referees' names and sometimes where they live and they'll come find them. And it's a society-wide problem. And it's driven in large part, I mean, it's driven by, I think, a bunch of things, but one of the big things that's driving it is for the last 20 years or so, people could see their mistakes. They're replayed on the jumbotron right above you or on the television set. And so you're sitting there saying, ah, he's an idiot. You don't notice the 20 calls he got that you, if you were the referee, never would have seen in a million years. It was incredible he saw the thing. Right. It's the one time- Or the bad calls that went your way. The ones that benefited your team. You don't see those. That's right. You don't, <laughs> you don't see those either. All you see is the mistake that somehow violated your interests and you dwell on that. Yeah. And it becomes the story you tell about that referee. And all of a sudden he's like against you. He's biased in some way. And you never hear it. You never hear fans say, oh, we won because of the refs. It's always, we lost because of the refs. Right. Both sides think they were screwed by the referee. What does that tell you? So, what would it take to restore faith in authority and institutions in the U.S.? 
We'll tackle that after one last break. You know, there was a piece I was going to write and I started to write it and it kind of just sort of fell apart. It became way too convoluted and there was too many moving pieces. You should write that piece. You would write it much better than I ever could. <laughs> but it was basically a kind of a, it was just sort of going to make the case that the loss of faith in authority and institutions that we're talking about is actually an existential crisis and should be treated as such because I cannot think of a single major problem from climate change to nuclear disarmament to pandemics that can be solved without cooperation. And trust. Trust. Yeah. Now, you think I'm being too dramatic. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. And I also think the corollary to that is it's not till people realize they're in an existential threat, an environment where their very existence is threatened, that they'll regenerate the trust because they have to. So I think you're absolutely right. I think it's that big a deal too. Yeah. You know, I felt that too. And then the pandemic happened and I, I realized that even that just kind of got folded into our political cleavages in a way. And that sort of shattered whatever hope I may have had in our ability to kind of snap out of our stupor. I had a really weird experience right before the pandemic. I was on a paperback book tour for the previous book, The Fifth Risk. And a British journalist asked me, this is November of 2019, what do you think it will take for Americans to start to rally around their government rather than attack it, to trust their institutions rather than undermine them, that kind of thing. And I said, I think a pandemic would do it. I, I did say, in my defense, because I was wrong, in my defense, I said a pandemic in which everybody was equally exposed and rich were as terrified as poor and all that, that that might drive the kind of change. Now, of course, we have a million Americans dead and it's, if anything, the situation's worse. So what what did I get wrong? Well, I might've got wrong that nothing's going to do it. But I do think that if you turn the dial on COVID a bit and it killed kids as opposed to old people and rich kids were at risk like poor kids, that you might've gotten a different kind of response. I guess what I'm saying is I do think that the threat exists that would force the response that you were hoping for. I think you're right about that. And the implications are horrible are devastating there. Yes. I mean, just horrendous. I mean, I think what we are teeing ourselves up for is to experience that problem because our guard is going to be let down. So I agree. I agree. And if you told me that a million people were going to die and we were going to still be at each other's throats and not be able to agree on anything and not essentially not take care of our population, or, I'd have said you're insane, that we will figure this out. But I was wrong. Yeah, you know, I had... Uh tweeted out a few weeks ago in a very like earnest, sincere way, asking people if they believe there was anything that would actually shake us out of this stupor. And you know, the most common answer was eh, an alien invasion, <laughs> that kind of thing. And I gotta be honest with you, I'm not sure about that <laughs> at all, at all. I mean, I, they, before you know it, there'd be some contingent arguing that it's just like a, a kind of George Soros funded <laughs> plot or ooh, that, you know what I mean? It would just, the ceaseless engines of human stupidity would just kick into gear as they always do. And I just, I don't know where the limits are. And, you know, I was going to ask you if you had any ideas at all about how to start rebuilding trust at every level of society, but that's an unfairly huge question. And I don't, I certainly don't have the answer. I mean, do you have it even like the beginning of an inkling of an answer? 
I think of it on such a personal micro level that as a broader social thing, I mean, again, you're going to hand me godlike powers. Some of the things I would do, something like maybe not mandatory national service, but people strongly incentivized when they're 18, 19 years old to spend a year or a year and a half working in some government service where they're all mixed up. I mean, part of the problem is we're not mixed up enough. It's much easier to think of us and them. If you're in Berkeley, California, and you've never met anybody from Alabama, or if you're in Alabama and you've never met anybody from Berkeley, California, or if you're poor and you've never met a rich person, or if you're rich and you've never had to do anything with a poor person. It's amazing how helpful it is when people have personal experience doing something together, trying to achieve something together with people entirely different from themselves. Then they have a living sense of, we're not all that different. There's no us and them. We don't belong in these tribes. It's not the natural order of things. So mixing up the society more in various ways is one answer I would give. My own answer is like what I do with my time. You know, I've been trying to write about this in ways that invite people who might be deeply skeptical that like anything in the government is good for them to see this in a different light. Like this thing exists to keep you safe. Think about it that way. So I think that the things that, storytellers can do that help. But it's, you're right, it's a big, seemingly intractable problem. You know, Plato had this idea that what we really needed was for philosophers to become rulers, you know, that if philosophy and politics were to unite, we'd live in this wise and well-ordered regime. But of course, for a million reasons, philosophers don't become rulers. And in our society today, the wisest among us don't become leaders. And I'm tempted to say that if only the decision makers were the experts, things would be great or at least significantly better. But that's probably foolish too. Leadership is about much more than than knowing things. But leadership though is about accessing the expertise. Yeah. So a good leadership is really good at cutting through the layers of the organization and finding the experts. When I think about the kind of people who I have been profiling as experts, most of them don't have the qualities of leadership. They're too narrow. They're too interested in their one thing. Yeah. They have too much of a hobby horse and they have no interest, you know? So I don't think that's the solution. Part of the solution is for the leader to understand he's not the expert. You've got to get the people in the room and let them talk and make, leave them unafraid to talk. But rule by technocrats is not what I have in mind for an ideal society. Nor I, I mean, I feel like the answer here is not to focus on elevating experts to positions of power, but rather to focus on building institutions that align our interests and our incentives so that expertise is valued and rewarded and applied. But damn, Michael, it does seem like what we have now is basically the opposite of that. We're complete like divergence of our actual interests and the incentives driving our institutions. And that just seems suicidal. But that is where we are, no? Not everywhere in every case, but it's, there is a pattern to the person who knows not being listened to or not having a chance to speak up. So yeah, I agree with that. I don't feel fatalistic about it. It's funny. It's one of the really curious things about writing The Premonition, which is about a very grim subject, is what a joyous experience it was. I mean, it was so much fun writing that book. And I felt so hopeful writing the book. Now, why would that be if the book is about how these people who were kind of trying to prepare us for this thing could have kind of told you before the thing that we weren't prepared and we're going to have this kind of bad response. And I think it was that basically we're still an extremely resourceful society. We have a lot of talent. 
It's not like we lack the talent or the resources. They're just poorly organized right now. It's partly a problem of leadership. It's partly a problem of followership. Like the citizens are responsible for their leaders in a democracy in a different way than they are in a different political system. And I think that like building the idea of a good citizen is a useful thing to do. Like part of your responsibility as a citizen is to know who to follow and who not to follow, who to put in positions of leadership and not put in positions of leadership. To me, one way a leader signals to me that they're worthy of being the leader is a basic humility about what they know and understanding that they've got to access lots more than themselves to make a decision. It's not just me. It's like us. It is. And, you know, I just want to say I've read your books for years. I've really enjoyed the podcast. It is a pleasure to read you and to listen to you talk about the world. So thank you so much for being here. The book recently re-released is called The Premonition. You should check it out. And the podcast is called Against the Rules. You should check that out as well. Michael Lewis, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sean. That was great. Totally fun. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.